Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon in today for Julia Chatterley. Coming up this hour, rescue workers are desperately searching for survivors at a Ukrainian apartment complex hit by a Russian missile strike. Forty fatalities reported so far. Dozens more are feared dead. We have a live report from the scene just ahead. Plus, a massive blow to the mafia. Italy's most wanted man is under arrest after decades on the run. We'll have the latest from Rome. But first, a check of global markets. And Wall Street is closed for the Martin Luther King Day holiday, but... Solid gains this hour for European stocks. The UK's FTSE 100 moving closer to record highs there. Green arrows also for Chinese equities. It is also a busy week ahead for investors. The U.S. is out with its latest look at wholesale inflation and retail sales. More U.S. firms report Q4 results, including Netflix and Goldman Sachs. And the U.S. is also set to hit its politically charged debt ceiling later this week, setting off a months-long congressional fight That's likely to rattle global investors. The debt ceiling drama is sure to be a big topic of discussion at the World Economic Forum, which kicks off today in Davos, Switzerland. Fears over slowing globalization, the threat of a global recession and the war in Ukraine, just some of the other major topics this year. More on the action in Davos later in the show. But first, we want to get to the war in Ukraine and days after Russia's deadly strike on an apartment building in southeastern Ukraine, the search for survivors continues. Kiev says at least 40 people were killed in the attack. Dozens of others may still be trapped under the rubble. Fred Pleitkin joins me now live in Dnipro, where the scene there is being described as apocalyptic. Fred. Hi there, uh, Rahel. And I, I would say apocalyptic is certainly the word that many people who have seen this and who have been here uh, would use as well. And, you know, one of the things that the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, said is he said he wants to save or he wants the crews here to save as many lives as possible. And, of course, the chances of doing that are really dwindling by the second. I'm going to get out of your way for a second so we can see what's going on here. You can see that the crews here are still working. They're obviously still trying to save people, but they are already using some pretty heavy equipment. And that really shows that they understand that the chances of finding anybody here now, um, so much time after this explosion took place, they are really minimal uh, at this point in time. They're already starting to take, as you can see, some of the plates of that building down, trying to clear some of the debris that, of course, has accumulated here after that gargantuan explosion took place. You can see behind me that that building is just gone. That building was simply annihilated by a gigantic missile that struck here, obviously killing scores of people, as you mentioned. And I want you to have a look at some of the things that we've been witnessing since we've come here and been on the ground. The morning brings to light the full extent of the destruction. The residential building, home to dozens of families, annihilated down to the foundation. Even though rescue crews still work, the chances of finding survivors now virtually zero. residents watched in fear, anger, and grief. Olha Nevenchanaya says she passed by the building only about half an hour before it was hit. There are many friends and people close to me here. Many, many, she says. 
Olena Loyan, stunned by the scale of the destruction, curses the Russians. I simply hate them. Children, people died here, and then she can't speak anymore. Throughout the night, the death toll continued to jump. On top of the many killed, Ukrainian authorities say dozens were injured, many of them children. In just this location in Dnipro, one of many sites in Ukraine, Russia targeted with barrages of missiles this weekend. The Ukrainians say the reason why the damage here is so extensive is that this building was hit with a cruise missile called the KH-22. That's designed to destroy aircraft carrier strike groups. And obviously, when it hit the building, it completely annihilated it, burying dozens of people underneath. The Ukrainians call the attack state terrorism. And the president says rescuers will continue to try and save anyone trapped here. Let's fight for every person, President Zelensky says. The rescue operation will last as long as there is even the slightest chance to save a life. But even the slightest hope has now all but died, and this is essentially a recovery operation. The crews searching for bodies where so many lives were violently ended in an instant. And Raoul, I do have a bit of an update for you as well, because we have since then uh, heard from the Russians now as well. This comes in the form of the spokesman of the Kremlin, Dmitry Peskov, and he denied that the Russians were behind this. He said that Russia does not target civilian infrastructure. The Russians are saying uh, that they believe that this was a stray missile defense rocket uh, that might have hit this building. Obviously, the Ukrainians not having any of that. They say they are certain that it was a KH-22 missile, as we just described in our report, that hit this building. They also say, Rahel, that they currently do not have any defense systems that would be capable of shooting such missiles down. And as you can see behind me, the damage is certainly very much extensive. One of the things that we've heard from the local administration here is that they're going to probably have to tear down about 250 apartments in this block just because the building itself has been damaged so much, Rahel. You know, it's hard to reconcile Fred, those comments from the Kremlin that they don't target civilians, and yet you see 40 people dying, including children. Uh, Fred, if I might, I want to turn to the eastern part of Ukraine, where uh, fierce battles continue, and Russia claiming over the weekend that its forces have taken the city of Solodar, while Ukraine says that it is still fighting. I mean, what do we know who, uh, who has control of the city? Well, right now, it's very difficult to say. Certainly, you're absolutely right. The Russians say that they have control uh, of uh, Solodar. The Ukrainians are saying that they are still active uh, in, in that area, at least, and, and also say they still have a toehold in that city as well. One of the things that we saw was interesting earlier today is we heard from the Ukrainians, and they said that they had now launched uh, some counterattacks against the Russians in the Solodar area as well, and obviously are still trying to put up a fight. One of the things that we can see is that this place is obviously very important for the Russians, very important, uh, for, specifically for that group called the Wagner Private Military Company, to simply get some sort of win for Vladimir Putin, because it certainly has been a long time since the Russians have made any headway uh, on the battlefields uh, in Ukraine. So it's certainly something where we can already see the Kremlin really talking about this a lot, Vladimir Putin talking about a certain dynamic on the battlefield, whereas the Ukrainians are saying they are still holding on. And certainly, if you speak to the Ukrainians and you look at what the Ukrainian leadership is saying, the morale here still is very, very high. And they understand that right now, in most of the fronts here in this country, uh, they do believe that they have the upper hand and they, they're doing a formidable job defending their country and obviously trying to expel the Russians from this country as well, Rahel.
Fred is an interesting point. The symbolism of a, of a win right now for uh, Russia, perhaps not necessarily a huge military victory, but symbolic nonetheless. Fred Pleiken, thank you. In Nepal now, authorities now say at least 69 people have died after a passenger plane crashed on Sunday. Three others are still missing. Police say that they have recovered the black box flight recorder from the plane as authorities work to find out what went wrong. This video shared on social media shows the plane rolling to one side. This is just moments before it went down. Vedika Sue joins us now with the latest. Uh, Vedika, wonderful to have you. I mean, as I said, that there are still three people missing. What can you tell us about that? I mean, is there hope that these people might actually still be alive or at this point, is it just a recovery mission to locate the bodies? It's looking bleak, Rahil. That's what I would say. And that's what officials are saying, that the chance of survivors is very little at this point. Today was day two of the search and rescue operation. 69 bodies have been pulled out of the gorge using cranes because of the depth of that gorge. And those bodies have been taken to the hospital where postmortems will be conducted. Remember, 15 of those 69 bodies are of foreign nationals. At least 15 of them are from outside Nepal who were on that ill-fated flight. And we're being told that their bodies, once uh, identified, will be airlifted to uh, Kathmandu. Uh, the capital of Nepal, where the postmortems will take place and then those bodies will be handed over to family members. Similarly, uh, with the bodies of the Nepali nationals, they'll be handed over to the family members after the postmortem is conducted. It's very important here to understand how big, uh, not an achievement rather, but uh, finding that black box has been a huge, huge uh, victory of sorts has got to fill up the investigations further for these people, the rescue uh, persons on the spot, on the site, because that black box may hold the answers to all the questions that the investigators have, the family members have, of what really went wrong in the cockpit after which that flight, actually that plane plunged into the gorge. It's really sad to see those family members who've been waiting outside the hospital, Rahil. They want answers, they want the bodies back, but as of now, the postmortems have to be conducted. Now, we do know that this is the deadliest air crash to take place in Nepal in more than three decades. In fact, also according to data that we have obtained, this is the third worst air uh, accident to have taken place in the history of Nepal. All eyes will be on that black box. We do know that a five-member team has been formed by the Nepal government to look into uh, the investigations, and we're expecting a report from them within 45 days. Rahil. Thank you. To China now, where China is revising the COVID death toll from 37 to nearly 60,000. That is after dropping zero COVID restrictions. And as the country's mass migration begins for the upcoming Lunar New Year holiday, concerns are rising over the spread of COVID. Mark Storr joins us from Hong Kong. Mark, great to have you. So help me understand. So this is a pretty significant revision, uh, 37 to 60,000, but this is also a nation of more than uh, 1.4 billion people. Is the expectation or is the feeling that 60,000 is really accurate or is there some skepticism about whether there is still a concern about transparency? So much skepticism, Rahel. I mean, as you mentioned, 1.4 billion people, 60,000. I mean, the math is just hard to reconcile. That aside, 
Based off of what we are seeing on the ground, we are seeing lines to crematoriums and to funeral homes. Hospitals are overwhelmed. That is why there is a lot of doubt about this data point. Now, just in the last few days, the government has said that they feel that the number of cases has peaked. Yet there are more and more calls for transparency, especially by the World Health Organization. So this number, it is being met with skepticism and then some, Rahel. And then, Mark, of course, Chinese New Year quickly approaching. Could that pose even more of a risk? I mean, even just anecdotally here in the U.S., in the West, we know when we have holidays, we also start to see a spike in COVID cases. What's the expectation there? Well, let's again look at the numbers. According to China's uh, transportation ministry, that is, there will be about 2 billion individual trips within that population of 1.4 billion. So people will clearly be on the move. And the concerns are very much similar to what we heard in the United States about the spread of COVID. Consider this. We are going to see people leaving from some of China's biggest cities, Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou, uh, Shenzhen. And then they will move to see family members, often in rural areas or in country areas, if you will, for lack of better words. But the healthcare there may not necessarily be as sophisticated and may not be as strong. So for those reasons, there is concern that this will spread. And outside of China, for people traveling outside of mainland China, there are a lot of restrictions. About a dozen nations have restrictions. We've heard in particular here in Asia from uh, from Japan and South Korea. So this spring holiday around the new year lasts about a month. And that is why so many organizations, including the World Health Organization, are watching China with such a critical eye hill. Mm, And as you point out, I mean, so many trips expected as many people presumably haven't seen their family in years after the zero COVID policies. Mark Stewart, thank you. One of Europe's most wanted men is in custody after 30 years on the run. Police arrested Sicilian mafia boss boss Matteo Messina Denaro while he was being treated in a private clinic. Barbie Nadeau joins us live from Rome with more. So, Barbie, after decades of being on the run, I mean, how did authorities ultimately catch up to him? Well, you know, it's a, it's a spectacular arrest. The fact that this man, who doesn't look that different from the age progression images that the police have been putting out, they hadn't seen him for 30 years, is arrested at a private clinic in central Palermo, largest city in Sicily. You know, obviously there was some sort of tip-off, but now they're going to be looking very much at the complicity aspect of this. Who knew he was there? Um, you know, how, how? what else has he done? Well, he's been basically hiding in plain sight. But this is a man who has been convicted and sentenced to several life sentences in absentia for murder, murder including the death of two very beloved um, anti-mafia prosecutors for the ordering the murder of an 11 year old boy who was, you know, dissolved in acid. Horrific, horrific crimes. Now, of course, the fact that he's behind bars means that there'll be another one, right, probably already in place right now. But this is being hailed as a victory in Sicily and in Italy for the rest of this this mafia Cosa Nostra boss. Um, But there are going to be a lot of questions to ask about why it took quite so long. Mm, As you say, complicity. Barbara Nadeau, thank you. Well, straight ahead, we are diving into Davos. Oxfam raises the issue of wealth inequality, but is anyone out there really listening? And Fortescue Metals promises an investment lifeline for Ukraine. The chairman of the Australian mining giant tells me about his reconstruction fund and his company's transition to green energy. We'll be right back.
Time to dust off the snow boots. The global gathering of political leaders, CEOs and influencers is getting underway at the Swiss ski resort of Davos. And as usual, Oxfam's Inequality Report has stolen the show at the World Economic Forum, saying that the world's wealthiest people are getting richer pretty much faster than everyone else. Anna Stewart is with me now. So, Anna, it sort of reminds me of that old expression, the rich keep getting richer, the poor keep getting poorer. I mean, tell us a bit about the report. What's widening this gap? What's fueling the widening gap? Well, that's just it. I mean, the top line is over the last two years, the wealthiest 1% have pocketed nearly twice the amount of new wealth created than the rest of the world. This isn't a surprise, as you say. The most depressing part I find about this report is it comes out every year at the beginning of the World Economic Forum in Davos, and every year it's a similar story. But the focus in terms of why the wealthier are getting wealthier still um, is really twofold. One, looking at what's happened in terms of policy, for instance, over the pandemic, governments injecting trillions of dollars into economies to protect them. And a lot of that has led to the acceleration of valuations for stocks and other assets. So those invested in financial markets have done very well out of that. And then you can actually look more sector-based. Why have certain sectors performed particularly well, whether it's food companies or most recently energy companies? As a result of the war in Ukraine, energy prices being high. Who benefits from those huge skyrocketing profits? Well, some of the biggest shareholders who are also often some of the wealthiest people in the world. This report says for the first time, though, in a quarter of a century, it's not just that you're seeing a rise in extreme wealth, but that is being accompanied at the same time in an increase in extreme poverty. Right now, looking around the world with inflation so high, with energy prices high, that feeds through to food and other kinds of bills. We are seeing a big increase in terms of poverty. And actually today... According to the World Economic Forum, their community of chief economists expect a global recession in 2023. So that's the latest line from them. And that suggests this situation could get a lot worse for those in poverty. Well, it's a great point, Anna, because you think about for people who uh, live in poor countries, I mean, a, a greater percentage of their disposable income is spent on food and energy, right? And so when you think about inflation, you can really start to understand the outsized impact uh, for those people. Anna, so, so what to do about it? What does the report say about what to actually do about the widening gap? Well, ultimately, they say, you know, every billionaire is a policy failure. They want to see a big redistribution of wealth. That is nothing new. But they do have ideas about how governments could go about that. They certainly want to see increased taxation for the wealthy. They want to see for the top 1% a base rate of 60%. Ideally, income tax would be even higher and would include things like your shares, you know, that you might not sell. That's an unrealized gain at the moment. They would like to see that tax. So people like Elon Musk would pay a lot more. They also want to see a windfall tax for companies like energy companies who are profiting from the war in Ukraine and the increase in energy prices. They want a one-off wealth tax. They want a lot. And it's, it's a great moment to put this report out with the elite gathering in Davos. Does it actually move the needle? Possibly not. But it does put pressure on policymakers and certainly lots of pressure on the top 1%, many of whom are in Davos right now. Well, as you point out, it's one thing to want something. It's another thing to actually see it come to pass. Mm. Anna Stewart, thank you. And you can expect plenty of talk about Ukraine and reconstruction at Davos this year. And on Tuesday, Ukraine's first lady is expected to speak at the event. Also there, one mining magnate who is already digging deep to help. Australian metals giant Fortescue is behind a $25 billion investment fund for reconstruction. The company is transitioning into green energy and resources, investing massively in giant electric and hydrogen-powered vehicles to help make its mining operations carbon neutral. Andrew Forrest is the group's founder and chairman and joins me now. Andrew, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. 
So I want to start there with this Ukraine Green Growth Initiative. Help me understand a bit more the scope of the fund and some of the support you've been able to shore up thus far. Basically, this is an idea whose uh, time has come. We all want to live in the era where violence, bullying one sovereign nation against another, um, might is right. All of that horrible part of the history of humanity could actually be put behind humanity by this one tremendous example of Ukraine defeating Russia. And so I want to do everything which I can, like I'm sure every free citizen in the world does, to help Ukraine defeat Russia. And Russia changed from a region to actually a country safe and peaceful within its own borders and every other nation around it safe and peaceful within their borders. And let it just be a message that the era of violence to, for political aims, one country against another should be left behind by humanity. And that $25 billion fund, which I hope will grow into a $100 billion fund, is there to really say to every Ukrainian, the instant the war finishes to the satisfaction of your government, we'll have a hair trigger investment to start rebuilding, but the right way, that horrible old Soviet equipment, that horrible old Soviet power stations, which the horrible old Soviets right now are trying to destroy, Let's rebuild that, but rebuild it green, let's rebuild it digital, let's make it the best infrastructure in the world. Let's commence that golden era for, you, for Ukraine, which those people more than deserve after standing up for what is effectively freedom for humanity. I see. So essentially you would have to wait for the war to officially be declared over. You'd have to wait till you're welcomed into the country by the Ukrainian government before you can actually deploy any of this capital. Well, you know, you just can't put together even 500 billion US dollars in my case, or 25 billion as a minimum to 100 billion, which is our target, overnight. So we've started work on this months and months ago, and we've got months of work yet to be done. But I think once people understand that, say, like the Marshall Plan Rail uh, after World War II, it was a tremendously brave, wonderful investment, which uh, American government, American citizens did to invest in Germany at the end of World War II. It turned out to be fantastic for Germany, fantastic for the investors. It's where you can put capital to work and know that it's doing very serious good. Um, and where I'm, and I certainly am out there speaking to other investors like me to say, let's deploy our capital where it can do the most benefit. Let's give as much encouragement as we possibly can to the people of Ukraine to know that when they win this war, they will enter into a, the golden era of Ukraine. Mm. I want to turn now to China. What are your thoughts as we watch China reopen quite quickly, in fact, but cases also surge? I mean, what, what are your thoughts as you watch that? And what type of impact has that had in terms of demand for metals? You're seeing a nation which is educated, ambitious, hungry for a better future for their own children than what they as adults have have themselves, that pent-up energy, that pent-up demand held back like a damn wall for two and a half years. You'll, you'll see that released. You'll see, as I hear constantly, uh, my Chinese friends saying, hey, we're going to travel here, we're going to go look at this apartment or this house or look at building this or expanding that. All of that is going to need commodities, all of that's going to need steel, of course, iron ore. I think that uh, rather than being a bear on the global economy from a Chinese perspective, I'm actually 
acknowledging that there will be inflation, there will be hardship, but the world will get through it. And the big economies like China and North America, let's think also about the Inflation Reduction Act and how championed by Joe Manchin, how wonderful that is and is going to be for the US economy. And you're seeing that in North America, you're seeing pent up demand, pent up energy about to be released in China. I think you'll see these big two economies really grow the global economy. I want to hopscotch a bit geographically. I want to go down to Davos, Switzerland, uh, where you are. The mood has been described in Davos as downbeat Davos. That's at least according to the Financial Times. I mean, how concerned are you looking ahead to 2023? As we said, on the one hand, you have China reopening. On the other hand, you have calls potentially for a global recession. What are you looking at for 2023? I'm seeing the factors which caused the hardship, the inflation, the interest rates, um, the rising cost of living, actually artificial. They were brought on us, certainly by COVID, where the world was struggling to get back into production, but then hit with this unjust, cruel invasion of Ukraine, which led to immediate shortages, in particular of energy. Now, that's a device. That is not a natural mechanism. That is what I hope will come to an end in human history. But that war will end. And what I am confident of is that the world must learn its lesson now and we must stop the rhetoric here in Davos or anywhere in the world, any parliamentary corridor, any chairman's boardroom, stop the talk, stop the rhetoric and get on with it. Let's acknowledge the simple truth. The more green energy you produce, the more green energy you consume, the lower the cost comes, the higher the standard of living of the citizen in that country comes. Now, you cannot say that for fossil fuel. The more you use fossil fuel, the more expensive it becomes, the more it's used as a weapon by dictators, uh, the more it pushes down the standard of living of innocent community members. That has to stop. We have to stop using the Band-Aid subsidising fossil fuel because we just want to get a quick kick in our political polls, but actually take the medium long-term measure to deliver clean, pollution-free, no-harm energy, which the more you produce and use it, the cheaper it becomes. It's the only energy like that in the world. There's economic proof. There's no debate about this. We've got to get on and do it. Well, to that end, look, I mean, you had a pretty ambitious uh, bet here with Sun Cable. It was a clean energy venture, which you hope to create the world's largest solar farm here. And yet you were back over the project, as was fellow billionaire Mike Cannon Brooks. Can you tell us more about what led to some of the differences or disputes that ultimately ultimately led you to to part ways? Yeah, look, I haven't been involved in the management of that company, but I've, I've seen that it's been hyper ambitious, very extravagant. Uh, and the capital cost of that cable going to Singapore just kept rising by 10%, 50%, 100%. Now, that isn't sustainable. That's what I would expect with inexperienced management and uh, a board of directors who have never done large projects. That concerned me, but not as much as the signals I received from Asia, particularly Singapore, that they actually weren't that interested in a 4,000-plus-kilometre-long cable going through Indonesian waters to get to them in the first place. And what they wanted was greener molecules. They wanted green ammonia, synthetic green methane. They want green hydrogen. They need those fuels. So instead of building a massively expensive cable, simply put in the solar farm, put in the electrolyzers, create the hydrogen 
put in the nitrogen if you want ammonia, carbon dioxide if you want, want syn synthetic green methane or just straight hydrogen and ship that to Singapore because that's what they're telling me they want. They don't want the electrons, they want the hydrogen. And so the customer is always right. And uh, while the company is on a particular course not to give the customer what I believe it wants, then we're happy to see that company be completely restructured and change course. Okay. Well, Andrew Forrest, we'll leave it here. Thank you for the time today. He is the founder and chairman of the Fortescue Metals Group. Thank you, Rahel. And coming up, a crisis in South Africa. Why the country's leader is forced to cancel his trip to Davos. Coming up next. Welcome back to First Move. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa skipping the World Economic Forum in Davos to deal with the country's energy crisis. South Africa is experiencing record blackouts as troubles worsen at a state-owned power utility company. David McKenzie is live for us in Johannesburg with the latest. So, David, help us understand this is a bit of a setback for Ramaphosa. Why is he staying home? What does he expect to accomplish staying home? Well, what he wanted to do uh, as the newly re-elected uh, president, Rahel, of the ruling ANC was to go and tout South Africa as an investment destination. This was an important moment for Ramaphosa, seen as a business-friendly president. But he's staying home because of, well, look at this headline as I grab this paper. The blackouts in South Africa. This is just a list from the Soweto, a local paper, of all the uh, businesses they've called in recent days, small businesses, funeral parlors, uh, you know, chicken shops, all kinds of businesses. And we were reporting on this late last year that have been just eviscerated by the ongoing power blackout. Some 10 hours or so of blackouts in my neighborhood today, Rahel. And that's why the president's staying. He wants to show that he somehow is on top of this, despite the evidence that there isn't a quick fix uh, to this real crisis in Africa's most advanced economy. Uh, and while people ask for change and protests are being organized, it seems there isn't really any way they can turn the corner on this anytime soon. Well, mm. David, it's funny. I was just thinking actually about your reporting at the end of last year where you documented some of these blackouts. So help me understand. I mean, it appears that the blackouts have grown more extreme as of late. How to fix this mess? I mean, what do you do here? Well, they have to really do a number of things. One is the aging uh, fleet of power stations, largely coal power station of ESCOM, the major power utility, which produces some 90% of the power. They are largely a monopoly. It's a maintenance issue. It's a long ongoing corruption issue. It's an issue of a lack of planning. You know, you could list this for the next hour in your show of what needs to be done and what hasn't been done, uh, according to all the experts at this point. Uh, what they're really trying to scramble is independent power producers uh, now are authorized to build up both uh, renewable energies and other energy sources to get into the grid. But the grid itself in this country is crumbling. So that's why you're getting uh, the opposition figures, uh, ordinary, system, uh, uh, ordinary citizens baying for blood. And you have this bizarre instance uh, late last year when the outgoing CEO of ESCOM, uh, Andre de Reiter, who we've interviewed uh, before for stories on this issue, uh, uh, claimed uh, through the power utility that he survived a poisoning attempt in the days uh, around when he announced his resignation. So there's a lot of intrigue behind the scenes. The basic issue is, though, uh, the small businesses, the individual citizens of this country are reeling 
uh, from a lack of power. One thing that the ruling ANC promised they would provide for the people when they came into power more than 20 years ago. So it's a tough situation and no short-term answers, I think, uh, but they are scrambling to try and fix it. Mm. Stephen McKenzie, thank you. And staying in Africa now, sportswear and athleisure brand AFA is poised to expand its footprint on local and international markets. Eleni Giacos has the details on today's Connecting Africa. Merchandise and apparel company AFA Sport was born with a global mindset to capitalize on the profitable athleisure and sports market. We came into a space where there was really no ecosystem at all to support the kind of industry we are trying to push. According to market research firm DataBridge, the global sports apparel sector will be worth almost $280 billion by 2030. AfaSport is the brainchild of former agent Ugo Adezwe, who returned to Nigeria in 2015 after living 20 years in the United States. Alpha Sports means Africa for Africa. Before, we used to import all our products from China. So I went in front of my board and said, I think we should go into manufacturing. They took a risk chance at it. Six months later, COVID hit, and we were the only people manufacturing and bringing in sports products in Nigeria. So that's how Alpha became very popular. Alpha Sports is hoping to tap further into the athleisure market, estimated to hit more than $20 billion in Africa and the Middle East by 2029. We have a booming middle class coming up, and obviously it's a massive domestic market that we have, right? So when we look at the sports industry, we definitely need to pour in additional investment. Kenya is actually one of our biggest opportunities, but Every time we ship products there, they have to pay duties that sometimes even more than the products they are buying. So if this opens up, you're talking about billions of people as an opportunity. These are Afro-Leisure dress. With the growing production footprint and a distribution partnership across Nigeria, Sport says they hope to build a legacy that will impact generations in and outside of Africa. You know, in the next three, four years, I see us as the Nikes of Africa. Africa is the next frontier. And coming up, global oil demand and the search for a greener energy future are main topics at the World Economic Forum this year. The head of the American Petroleum Institute joins us with his take on what's next for oil and the role of renewables. Coming up next. Welcome back. Climate change and the role that big oil can play in a cleaner energy future sure to be hot topics at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland this year. Climate activists marched in downtown Davos over the weekend to demand stronger climate action from attendees. A number of CEOs from major oil firms will be at the Economic Forum. And all this as oil investors face a highly uncertain 2023. Rising demand from China, the war in Ukraine, and the threat of a global recession will all surely affect the price of energy in the months ahead. Also, OPEC's production response will be crucial here, as well as the ability of U.S. producers to ramp up supply if needed. 
The president and CEO of the American Petroleum Institute, Mike Summers, joins me with his take on the oil industry outlook this year. Mike, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Rahel. So we've heard a lot already this program just about the need for clean energy and the transition. And yet you argue that oil production also needs to be ramped up and the administration needs to do more to prioritize the oil industry. And I wonder, can you do both at the same time? You absolutely can do both. In fact, what we found over the course of the last decade is that one of the reasons why we've been able to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the United States from 2005 to 2020 wasn't necessarily because we invested a lot in so-called green technologies, but actually because we were able to pursue a fuel switch from coal being the number one source of power in the United States in 2005 to natural gas now. That's led to increased levels of uh, our reductions in uh, greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. We've cut greenhouse gas emissions here in the United States at levels not seen anywhere else in the world. In fact, the United States has actually cut our greenhouse gas emissions almost as much as the European Union has combined uh, in that time period. We want to continue to do that. And the way to do it is we need to continue to invest in uh, oil and gas here in the United States because natural gas is the reason we've been able to cut uh, greenhouse gas emissions here in the United States. And we want to export that kind of uh, greenhouse gas cutting uh, throughout the world. So what type of policies are you looking to, to see from the White House and the administration uh, look, heading into 2023 and beyond? Well, there are a couple of different things that they can do. First of all, we need to open up the uh, outer continental shelf in the Gulf of Mexico for more production. Those are the lowest carbon barrels of oil uh, in the world. We need to continue production in the United States. This administration has actually sat on uh, the, the so-called five-year plan in the Gulf of Mexico, meaning that no leasing can occur. The only leasing that's, occur that's occurring under this administration has been mandated by federal law uh, by the Inflation Reduction Act. We also need to pursue more onshore production. We need to have lease sales in uh, the onshore, particularly uh, in the Permian Basin and in, in New Mexico and other federal lands. So those are two things that we can do to produce more here in the United States, because we know the world's going to continue to need lots of oil and gas into the future, particularly with the ongoing uh, terrible war that's going on in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. The other thing that this administration can do is they can cite new pipelines to so that we can get this uh, oil and gas from where it is to where it needs to be. Mike, I want you to respond to a comment earlier. We spoke to Andrew Forrest. He is the chairman of Fortescue Metals, uh, one of the largest mining companies in the world. And they are uh, sort of they are sort of moving, transitioning to green energy as well. And what he said to me was, the more you use fossil fuel, the more expensive it becomes, the more it's weaponized. How would you react to that? Well, that's one of the reasons why we need to produce more here in the United States. You know, unfortunately, we've become reliant too much on regimes that are hostile to Americans, America's interest. We have the product right here. The solution is right here in the United States. We just need to pursue it. You know, in Pennsylvania alone, for example, there's over 400 years of natural gas under Pennsylvania that we even know of. Ohio is another great example of where we can get more natural gas and more production. We can produce these products here in the most stable regime in the world, here in the United States. Uh, if, we, if we just uh, unleash this uh, power that we have, we can do it. Uh, but it's going to require politicians to work with the oil and gas industry uh, to pursue these policies that we've outlined in our Make, Move, and Improve plan, which you can find at API.org. And Mike, speaking of politicians, I mean, it's certainly no secret that relations between the industry and the White House were quite tense, uh, more tense than others at certain points of the year. What is the state of relations now? 
we have a great ongoing dialogue with this administration. We we talk with them almost every single week about policies that they can pursue. We've solved a lot of problems that uh, you know uh, uh, you know re regular citizens don't even know about because of some of that that ongoing dialogue. We want to work with them. We want to work with both sides of the aisle to pursue these policies. It's one of the reasons why we put out this new plan uh, here just last week because we believe that if uh, politicians work together with the industry to develop these solutions, we're gonna be able to get some stuff done this year, even in divided government. I'll remind you that in 2015, one of the most important policy changes that we were able to get done in the last two decades was lifting of the crude oil export ban uh, that was in place since the 1970s. That was done when Republicans controlled Congress and Barack Obama was president of the United States. And our studies show that we're producing two and a half million barrels more a day as a consequence of that policy change that was done under divided government. We can get stuff done under divided government if both sides of the aisle work together with industry. And that's what our Make, Move and Improve plan is all about. Mike, what do you see as the biggest risk to oil prices for consumers into 2023? Well, there, I think there are a lot of uncertainties out there. We don't predict prices, uh, but you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, particularly with uh, the uh, unlocking of China right now that could re lead to uh, increased uh, demand in China for American products and world products. So that is one uncertainty that, uh, that we're seeing right now. But you know, a lot of the downward pressure on oil prices is a result of economists predicting a potential recession, which of course would lead to less demand uh, for these products. Uh, we're very bullish on uh, the prospects for American energy going forward. We have the best resources in the world, in the Gulf of Mexico, in the prolific Permian Basin, in the Bakken in North, North Dakota. We have a lot of opportunity here in the United States. That's not even to mention Alaska, which, which has been uh, one of our most prolific uh, uh, regions in the United States, or Pennsylvania, where uh, this industry started. So we have a lot of opportunity to uh, invest more and to unlock these resources for world consumers. Yeah. Interesting, Mike. We'll have to leave it here, but it's so interesting, the global recession fears. You know, I wonder sometimes if investors are perhaps reacting a bit too strongly, because when I talk to energy experts about what we actually see in terms of global consumption demand during times of recession, the, the impact is pretty marginal. I think less than 10 percent if you look at the last six recessions or so. So sometimes I think the reaction might be a bit knee jerk, but we'll have to wait and see. Mike Summers, thank you. Thanks for help. Yep. He is the president and CEO of the American Petroleum Institute. And you are watching First Move. Coming up, Indonesia's solution to its sinking, yes, sinking capital. Full details next. Welcome back. The government of Indonesia is planning to relocate its capital city as Jakarta rapidly sinks into the Java Sea. The proposed new location is a jungle-covered area on the east of Borneo. However, some environmentalists are warning that the move could endanger the wildlife and rainforest there. CNN's Christy Lou Stout has the details. Jakarta is a sinking city. Scientists say the sprawling capital of Indonesia, home to more than 10 million people, is dropping below sea level at alarming rates, mainly due to excessive groundwater extraction. The government of Indonesia has a plan to carve a new capital city called Nusantara out of the dense jungles of eastern Borneo. At an estimated cost of more than $30 billion, it's being designed as a futuristic smart city and touted by government officials as the world's most sustainable. 
The development of the new capital has to become a move towards building cities that are healthy, efficient, and productive, that are designed to be a place where the people are close from any destination, where they can bike and walk everywhere because there are zero emissions. Officials describe the new capital as a sort of Garden of Eden built along the contours of the natural landscape. Nusantara is expected to be completed in 2045, and the government says it will be more than three and a half times the size of Singapore and home to nearly two million people. Officials and developers claim it will have minimal impact on surrounding rainforests that are some of the oldest in the world. We have in our, um, in our guidelines is... All the building, especially key buildings or government building, needs to be green, green building. It needs to be sensitive to the environment. It's also futuristic. It's a future uh, smart city, smart government, smart society, smart infrastructure. But some environmentalists disagree, warning of a potential habitat destruction. The area is unique with its natural habitats and native species. And if its mangrove forests are destroyed, all the native species will be gone too. And the next generations can only hear the stories about the species because they don't exist anymore. There is another concern about the project, the potential displacement of indigenous tribes. The land and the farms are inherited from our ancestors. The land is the biggest asset of our tribe. For us, the farm is the source of life. If our land is taken away, how could we farm? How could we live? To that, the government has said it will compensate landowners. And there are also some critics who say Indonesia should concentrate on fixing the problems in Jakarta, arguing millions of residents will remain in the current capital, struggling to cope with pollution, traffic and worsening floods. Will it relieve congestion in Jakarta? Will it make whoever is left behind in Jakarta get to live a bit better? Well, I don't think so. As construction ramps up this year, many questions remain. But one thing is clear. The road to creating Nusantara, Indonesia's shining city on a hill, will likely be an uphill climb. Christy Lustout, CNN. And finally, the 1990s are calling. Gen Z's newest obsession is the old-fashioned flip phone. The devices are on sale for as little as 20 bucks at retailers like Walmart and Amazon. And TikTok is awash with videos of young people unboxing both modern and vintage versions. It's part of a growing trend of young people trying to unplug. Psychologists say as smartphones and social media grow, well, so does the depression rate among teens. Now it seems they're choosing to use a flip phone over a smartphone instead. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 